0: American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York. This presentation took place at the CUNY Graduate Center as part of our Bridging Historias through Latino History and Culture Program, a national endowment for the Humanities Bridging Cultures at Community Colleges Project. Cartoons are often a way to get at some really uncomfortable truths that are hard for students um, to think about. And I always start with this image of the Alamo. Is anybody from Texas? (laughs) Um, People in Texas are sort of really invested um, in the idea of of the Alamo and what happened um, at the Alamo. Um, And this image here is actually pretty historically accurate. Uh, The Mexican forces surround the Alamo. Um, They surrendered. Um, and were uh, and turned over to the Mexican forces, but that's not the way that American history um, has remembered it. Um, and particularly Hollywood. And if you ask most Texans or you ask most people what they remember about the Alamo, this is the story that they will tell. Um, How the brave uh, people inside the Alamo, including Davy Crockett, um, as evidenced by John Wayne here, went down uh, fighting. When his gun breaks off and it doesn't work anymore, he picks it up and he starts beating the Mexicans um, away uh, from from him. Um, So I like to use some of these images to think about how we tell stories, how we think about history, and how important national memory is to, uh, to Americans, and in this per- in particular case, Texas um, identity. And it's a great way for students to begin to start thinking about um, how to unpack history and why history um, really, uh, really matters. Um, So the question uh, we come up with today, so this is 1836. Um, By 1848, we're really beginning to start to think about what uh, this U.S.-Mexican border uh, means. And this is very much a line that is imposed um, onto a landscape that in some ways um, is very much uh, unified, that is a desert uh, landscape. Um, Most of the border um, up until El Paso is along the Rio Grande uh, River. And what I like students to think about is that rivers are actually something that bring um, communities together, right? Both sides of the river have some kind of economic interest with each other. They have a geography uh, that is very similar, uh, regardless of which side of the river that you are on. And yet, in most cases, we use rivers as political boundaries. We use rivers as ways of dividing up groups of people. Um, For most of the 19th century, and I would argue for a big chunk of the 20th century, people who lived alongside the border, whether they lived north of the border in the United States or south in Mexico, had much more in common with each other culturally, socially, the kind of foods they ate, the language they were speaking, their familial relationships, than they ever had with the centers of their countries. So people along the border had more in common with the people who lived in Texas than they did with people in Mexico City, people who lived in New Mexico, Arizona, the southern part of California had much more in common with the people across the border than they did with people in Washington, D.C., who, as we know, in many cases, were very much in opposition. So I think we want students to think about borders as places that can actually bring people together and to think of them as cohesive groups and not always as a place that divides um, the um, nations. Um, I think if you ask your students what a border looks like, they'll talk about the fence. They'll talk about drones. They'll talk about border control. They'll talk about all these things that separate it. And I think putting the border into historical context and really getting students to think about how this, at one point, was a unified place. And this border has been very much marked, designated, made military in all kinds of really important ways. And talking about that historical process can lead to really profitable um, discussion. Um, So let's sort of move on here. Um, Let's talk a little bit about what actually um, creates uh, the border and um, just sort of skip ahead to the end of the U.S.-Mexican War. Um, As you know, the war takes place between 1846 um, and 1848. Um, It actually starts as a border skirmish and an issue over Texas. Texas had been an independent country um, from uh, the mid-1830s until 1845 when the U.S. decided to annex uh, President Polk did. Uh, Mexico saw this as an act of aggression because they had never recognized Texas independence um, after uh, the Alamo and and the aftermath of um, of that. Um, and so this created a border uh, tension between the two uh, countries. Um, this is the moment of manifest destiny with the United States. It's beginning to really think of itself as a continental nation. Um, and in the space of the two years, they pick up um, all this territory from Mexico, which we'll focus on, um, and also the territory um, up uh, in the Northwest, uh, what is today Oregon and Washington. So in the space of about five years, the territorial sort of ideas Um, An advertisement of the country really coalesce um, around these two um, things. Um, What's important about the U.S.-Mexican war is that this is really the first time that the U.S. has fought a war that can really be attributed to total aggression. Uh, They cross the border into Mexico. Much of the war is fought um, in the northern provinces um, out um, on the western coast in Veracruz. Um, And eventually U.S. troops move into Mexico City and occupy Mexico City. Um, And this is the first time that the U.S. flag at some point is actually flown over a foreign US capital. And people were very uncomfortable about this, uh, particularly people like John Quincy Adams, uh, Abraham Lincoln, who was not um, a, a early proponent um, of the war. And people really wondered, what did this mean for a democracy and a republic uh, to be flying a flag of imperialism and a flag of aggression over a foreign country? Was this really what a young nation should be in the business of, um, of doing? Um, when the US took over, there was a fairly significant political force in the United States that wanted to have the All-Mexico Movement. And the idea was that all the territory of Mexico would actually be incorporated into the United States. And so you can imagine today in the United States that goes from, you know, the northern border with Canada all the way down uh, to the tip um, of, of Mexico. Um, you know, and people argued, uh, particularly uh, Southern Democrats um, who were interested in the spread of slavery um, into this territory, it seemed like a, a good place for that, um, that this could be a very significant a significant move for the United States and something that could bring them um, lots, um, lots of wealth. Um, in the end, the plan was thwarted. And I argue that it's for three very different groups who somehow actually came together um, despite their different political um, ideologies. Um, first of all, northern liberals, as I said, people like Adams um, and Lincoln, uh, worried about the idea of conquest and the idea of democracies and republics engaging in this kind of behavior uh, with their neighbors who were also, um, Mexico was republic um, at um, at the time. Um, the question of slavery clearly comes to the forefront. Northerns are very uh, leery of bringing in this much territory, which has the potential um, to become slave states um, in uh, the territorial process. Um, And then finally, in the end, I would really argue that racism and anti-Catholic behavior um, on the part of people in the United States is one of the major reasons uh, that um, they are not incorporated um, into the United States. And the question really becomes, when you incorporate this kind of land, this much land, um, what are you going to do with the 8 million people who live there? Um, This is a population of Mexicans, Indians, mixed peoples, uh, Catholics, and I think we can't sort of underestimate the anti-Catholic sentiment. Um, that's going on um, here. And so that becomes a very difficult, difficult political and ideological question for the United States uh, to, to deal with. And in the end, it's, it's thwarted, um, and we only take uh, the northern portion um, of uh, Mexico uh, along the border of the Rio Grande. Yeah. How viable was it to think that the U.S. could actually conquer all of Mexico? That there would be uh, um, a reaction? <clears throat> Um, I think there definitely would have been a reaction. I think, you know, one of the other great myths is that this was a bloodless conquest of the territories that actually, you know, New Mexico, Texas. Um, There was lots of pushback, um, even from places like California and New Mexico, that were very much um, sort of alienated from the center of Mexico. So certainly, um, if you think about taking over Central Mexico, Mexico City, which has a very anti-Yankee, anti-American sentiment, it would not have been bloodless by any stretch of the uh, Stretch the imagination, but what's interesting to me is that often doesn't play into it. They think, "Oh, we won. Our flag's sitting in Mexico City. It's all over. It's our, it's our decision to make." And I think it doesn't sort of play with the political realities that are that are down there. Um, One of the things that I really like to do with my students is to do an analysis um, of the Treaty of Guadalupe um, Hidalgo, which is actually still a very important treaty that um, is the basis for uh, much of our relationship with Mexico today. Um, It actually gets mentioned um, in the NAFTA trade agreement um, when um, it's it's talked about. And I just want to go over a couple things and then talk about two provisions in it. Um, It said annexed half of Mexico, created the Rio Grande as the international border. um, Actually paid $15 million to Mexico for the territory that it took. The ironic thing is that that is precisely the amount of money that the US had offered Mexico before the war had even started. And they had said, we'll give you $15 million if you give us Texas, New Mexico, um, California. And I think that goes to your point. Mexico was not interested in just sort of ceding that territory. Um, So in the end, they got a war, and they're $15 million. Um, the great irony of all of this is that the treaty is signed um, by Mexico on July 4th of 1848, um, just barely the day after gold is discovered at Sutter's Fort um, in California. So the moment that this land is turned over to the United States, all of a sudden California becomes one of the richest uh, pieces of property and territory in North America, and Mexico's given that up uh, to uh, the uh, States. And then finally the last little piece of land, uh, the Gadsden Purchase, um, is picked up um, in 18, um, 1854. Um, I like to look at two uh, particular uh, articles of the treaty um, and then I have the students fo- focus on two particular articles. Um, the first um, is Article uh, 9. Um, and this is the article that establishes citizenship for Mexicans um, who are being incorporated into the United States. So these are people who are living in Texas, California, um, and um, uh, and New Mexico. Um, and I just want to read you uh, two, uh, two sections um, here. Um, when the treaty uh, was first put into its original um uh, the original writing of it um, that was carried out between the two uh, uh, diplomatic corps of the United States and Mexico. Um, this is the wording that it talked when it talked about how citizens would be um, incorporated. It said, Mexican citizens who in the territories aforesaid shall not preserve the character of citizens of Mexican of the Mexican Republic, so they're giving up their Mexican citizenship, shall be incorporated into the Union of the United States and admitted as soon as possible according to the principles of the federal constitution, to the enjoyment of all the rights of citizens of the United States. And this was very much meant to conform with the Northwest Ordinance that had passed in the 1780s about how territories would be incorporated and how people would be brought in as as citizens. And so it seems all very straightforward and clear and fair. Um, This is the way they had treated citizens who had been brought in um, as a result of the Louisiana Purchase um, and the Floridas as well. Um, When this uh, document actually got to the US Senate, um, it was rewritten and and modified. Um, And by the time it was ratified, this is how uh, the um, language went. Um, So Mexicans who are not going to be Mexican citizens will conformably with what is stipulated by in the preceding article, and here's the money quote, um, shall be incorporated into the Union of the United States and be admitted at the proper time, and then quotes, to be judged by the Congress of the United States to the enjoyment of all rights of citizens of the United States. So now citizenship is no longer a right that comes with this international treaty. It's now up to Congress to decide uh, when citizenship will be granted to these people. Um, States uh, like New Mexico and Arizona had the longest territorial period of any um, states brought into the Union, with the exception of Puerto Rico, which still has not been brought in uh, to the Union. Uh, Texas was immediately admitted because it had a whole sort of different historical trajectory. Uh, California was obviously very early admitted in 1850, but that was because of the massive amount of migration that had happened um, as a result of the gold rush. So here we see where citizenship is now becoming a contested political idea um, at this moment. Um, The last one I just want to look at real quickly is Article 10, and this is about issues of property. Um, As you know from, you guys read my little piece, um, there was always this conflict between the two systems of property between uh, the United States and Mexico. And the Mexican government wanted to preserve these property rights very clearly for their citizens who were being incorporated. Um, In Article 10, when you look at the document, you'll see there are three paragraphs that go into deep, long detail about how this will happen. Basically, what they're saying is any land right, any land grant that existed under Mexican law shall be considered valid under US law. Uh, Again, that seems very fair and very clear. Um, When this article um, and this section got to the US Senate, um, it was completely stricken out. Um, So in the final version of the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, there is no Article 10. There's absolutely nothing that preserves the property rights um, of former Mexican citizens in the United States. Um, And we could talk about how sort of ideas of property feed into these ideas of citizenship. And so what you see is a whole group of people who are entering the United States with a citizenship that's already sort of compromised um, and having to face a system um, of legal regime where they have to prove property rights that had existed in a prior regime. Um, And so you begin to see sort of the off-kilter balance of of this. Okay, I want to skip ahead just a little bit um, to the late 19th century Um, So after the treaty, um, we have the Civil War. Uh, We sort of move ahead to the industrialization um, of the western uh, frontier, the western um, countryside. Um, And Mexican labor becomes a really important uh, piece of this. And this um, image is a little um, out of our time, but I think you get a sense of it. Um, Mexicans were very much lured um, into the United States because of the massive um, opportunities for them um, in terms of the industrialization um, of, of the countryside. Um, so agricultural production is going up, um, industrialization inside of western cities um, is all drawing people um, across, um, across the border. Um, and one thing i like my students to really understand is that prior to 1910, the border was pretty much free and open. There might have been crossings um, here and there. People were very rarely checked. People crossed for the day, went back and forth. People had family who lived on the other side. They'd go see their their grandmother on the other side. They'd go visit somebody. They'd come back at the end of the day. Um, And people, for the most part, like this, particularly um, American industrialist um, uh, companies um, who were beginning to come in and grow um, large agricultural uh, production, mining companies. They loved this sort of free flow of immigration um, and people um, into this uh, kind uh, uh, kind of work. Um, for the most part, I think we can think of this, um, in many cases, a lot of male uh, work, uh, male transients that's uh, coming in. And again, I try to really emphasize to my students that the issue of citizenship is not um, at the forefront of how people are thinking about their identity. I think they're thinking about themselves as workers. They're thinking of themselves as family members who are uh, taking uh, money back uh, to their families. But I think citizenship is not at the forefront of how people are are thinking um, uh, Um, about this. Um, And again, sort of, you know, sort of the remnants that are left over uh, from the treaty, from the war itself, uh, biased ideas about, uh, racist ideas about how Mexicans are to participate um, in this community uh, really begin to emerge um, and continue to emerge at the end of of the 19th century. So I think you know this is very much a story that when you're talking about, you could talk about it in the context of sort of the you know growing Eastern and Southern European migration that's coming as well um, to the United States, and this becomes this is a piece of that um, that I think is very much focused on the Western uh, Western part of the country. Okay, let's skip ahead a little bit. I want to talk about a little bit about um, the World War I um, and moving um, into uh, the Mexican uh, Revolution. Um, again, I think, you know, when we talk about World War I, this is something where we really tend to focus um, on uh, European, the European war and our intervention uh, there. Um, and Mexico is really such an important piece um, of, of this story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you can put it into the context of the earlier war, the Spanish-American War in 1898, where the U.S. is beginning to really focus on its concerns in the Western Hemisphere Um, and its relationship with uh, uh, countries in the Western Hemisphere, particularly um, in the uh, Caribbean. Um, And I think you can do some really interesting comparisons with the way that the U.S. is treating uh, places like uh, Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines with the way it begins to really talk about Mexico and its relationship to Mexico, the need to foster democracy, the need to sort of bring stabilization to it um, in the wake of uh, the, uh, the revolution. Um, During the latter part of the 19th century, uh, Mexico had had a fairly stable uh, regime. It had been run by a dictator by the name of Porfirio Díaz, who had very close ties with the United States, particularly with U.S. uh, corporations. Um, By the time the revolution comes in 1910, um, 80% of Mexico's railroads were owned by U.S. companies. Uh, 20%, 27% of the land base in Mexico was held by U.S. citizens or U.S. companies, and about 45% of all industries in Mexico were held uh, by U.S. Um, companies. So you can think about the anti-American, anti-Yankee sentiment that's really pervasive in Mexico at this time. And this was very much based on this close relationship between the Diaz regime um, and Gilded Age politicians at the end of the 19th um, century. Um, when the Mexican Revolution comes in 1910, it's very much about issues of income uh, redistribution. Um, it has, it itself has a very anti-cleric, anti-Catholic sentiment uh, uh, component um, of it as well. Um, and it becomes very much also a very anti-American, anti-Yankee um, uh, revolution as, as well. Um, As you can imagine, um, this leads to great fear in the United States uh, about the disruption that's happening across the border, the fear that that violence and that revolution, those ideas, um, will actually spread across the border. And I think that goes a lot to the way that I think U.S. actually felt about the American we- American Southwest. And it itself was not fully incorporated um, and fully a part of the nation as well. And that these revolutionary ideas could actually bleed into places like Texas, uh, San Antonio, Albuquerque, um, Los Angeles, that there might be enough as sort of a cohesive um, uh, group of uh, People there, and so you have a lot of sort of surveillance um, of Mexican um, radicals who are crossing the border, and this fear um, of radicalism, particularly of communists, uh, coming in um, to uh, the um, the United States. Um, in particular, Woodrow Wilson um, is very keen uh, to intervene um, into the revolution after Diaz has been um, overthrown. Uh, presidents prior to that had sort of had a very much sort of hands uh, off uh, uh, hands-off, um, approach, but Wilson, being Wilson, very much wants to have things all in control and tidied up and neat. He likes, he likes neatness, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, and then that just seems, Mexico just seems so messy and out of, um, out of control uh, to, um, uh, to him. Um, So there are two particular incidents um, that um, lead uh, to uh, U.S. uh, actually crossing the border again and U.S. intervention um, in Mexico. Uh, First is that a German uh, supply ship shows off uh, the coast of Mexico outside of Veracruz. And we'll talk when we get to the Zimmerman uh, Telegraph about uh, the relationship between Germany and and Mexico a little bit more. Um, But this fear that uh, the Germans are actually supplying the revolution and will actually sort of use the revolution um, as a way to make inroads um, into the United States. Um, And so the U.S. actually blockades the port um, of Veracruz to keep uh, goods uh, from flowing um, into Mexico, Um, and then uh, the Mexican government uh, uh, actually—I'm sorry—arrests a a couple of U.S. officials, um, much to Wilson's uh, dismay. It sort of sets off a diplomatic um, tiff uh, between the two uh, the two countries that lasts through uh, 1916. Um, on the other side, um, on the border, there's a, a couple of border raids uh, that begin to take place. You have Pancho Villa on the left, and you have the Pershing um, Expedition um, here um, on, um, on the right. Um, up until the Wilson administration, the federal government, the U.S. federal government, had actually been very supportive of Pancho Villa, and had actually sort of wanted to, to see him um, come to power in Mexico. Um, And once Wilson comes into the presidency, he abandons uh, uh, VIA, much to VIA's distress um, and anger, um, and supports another uh, candidate, uh, President um, Carranza. Um, in retaliation for this, Pancho Villa takes somewhere between 500 and 700 of his forces um, and actually crosses the border um, into New Mexico and does a raid um, on, an air, on an army base in Columbus, New Mexico, um, engages U.S. troops there, uh, sort of terrorizes uh, the city, um, in which 24 people are, are killed. Now, the important moment for this is that because at this moment, this is really an international border. This is when people are really starting to talk about the U.S. crossed the border um, into Mexico, Pancho Villa's crossed the border into the United States. And believe me, this is a location, New Mexico, southern New Mexico in 1910, as you know from... Um, uh, um, uh, John's book that we read earlier um, in, in 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 the semester. Um, this is not a place that the United States really thinks is, as the heart and core, of, you know, of the United States. And yet, all of a sudden, this border becomes some place that needs to be protected from these marauding troops um, across the border. So this idea of how the border is really becoming um, an important political, ideological place um, in the in the minds of uh, U.S. Uh, politicians. Um in the end, uh, Wilson sends uh, General Pershing um, across the border and for about six months he basically traips across uh, the northern uh, states of Mexico looking for Pancho Villa. He never finds him. Um, but with him um, is also a very young uh, General Eisenhower or who will become um, General Eisenhower, and a very young Patton uh, with him as all. So again, he sort of sees people sort of cutting their teeth in these sort of early skirmishes, people that will show up again um, in uh, World War, uh, World War Two. Um, so you have this sort of destabilization um, of the U.S.-Mexican uh, border, um, but you also are really beginning to see for the first time this is a, this is truly a border. This is a place that will now begin to be policed. Um, it will have crossings on it. Uh, there will be only certain places where people can cross at certain times of the day. When they do cross, they will be inspected um, in some of the most humiliating, humiliating ways. Um, they're checked for disease. Their bodies are checked in ways that we would find um, completely um uncomfortable um, and abhorrent. And so bodies of Mexicans now become sort of the site of how this border is beginning to uh, play, um, play out. All of this, of course, is happening, happening in this context of immigration, um, this fear of political radicalism in the 1910s um, and the 1920s. Um, and I think you can tie this very much into this sort of early Red Scare um, as as well, so this fear that um, radicals uh, will be crossing the border, communists, anarchists, um, in particular, as uh, as well. So I think again, sort of putting it in um, in this context as well. It's not something that's that's separate. Um, And as I get, sort of this fear of immigrants and migrants as well. This is a moment of great movement um, in the United States. You have African-Americans who are leaving the American South um, into the North, um, increased violence, the kind of uh, lynchings. Um, you'll also have these the same kind of racial violence that's perpetrated against Mexicans in places like Texas um, by the Texas Rangers and in California as well. And these are all sort of part and parcel of the same kind of fear that's um, 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 really fomenting. Uh, the rise of the second KKK in particular, which is not just all only about race, but um, anti-Catholic, um, anti-Jewish as well. Um, and so Mexicans sort of come in. Um, being um, targeted by the KKK in places like Colorado, um, not only on racial grounds but on religious grounds as well. And there's a much, much anti-Catholic sentiment. Um, the one thing I always like to point out here is the National Origins Act of 1924, which really restricts immigration from Europe. Right. This is the moment in which the uh, you have the contraction of uh, that. Um, Immigration from Southern and Eastern Europe, um, and this is the moment, the thing that is, the people that are excluded from that law um, are Mexicans and people from the Western Hemisphere. So after 1924, you have this absolute explosion of immigration, uh, of people crossing the border to fill those labor needs that are now long, no longer now being filled um, by um, Eastern um, and Southern uh, European immigration. So the period up into the Depression is a period of people crossing the border, um, filling these labor needs because of the industrialization, the peak um, of the 1920s, overbuilding, um, overproduction. um, And this will all come um, to um, a um, um, a crash, literally, um, in 1929 um, with the Depression um, in 1929. Um, As I've said, between 1900 and 1930, um, Mexicans uh, were really encouraged to migrate um, and fill these uh, labor uh, demands. Um, the problem is that with the Depression, and particularly with the Dust Bowl um, of the early 1930s, um, in which literally thousands of uh, white Americans are being pushed out of the American Midwest from places like Kansas, Oklahoma, Colorado, um, all these people of Steinbeck's uh, Grapes of Wrath, um, those people are now migrating and being pushed um, into places like California, or that's the place uh, where, they, um, where they head to. That migration comes into direct conflict with these Mexicans um, who have been immigrating um, or have settled, have been long-term settlers, Um, in places like California, Um, and it comes to be termed the Mexican problem, or the idea of Mexicans um, who are now out of work um, in California because of the depression, because of increased uh, labor um, competition, Um, people who are racialized um, as they come in to get work relief, either from the state or from the federal government that's pouring in um, as a result of New Deal uh, programs. Um, So one of the ways that people, um, particularly local um, politicians, began to deal with this is to think of a way of getting rid of the problem by literally deporting um, or repatriating uh, Mexicans uh, back uh, to uh, Mexico. Um, And here's a photo of uh, people getting ready to board these trains um, in Los Angeles in the railway station. Um, what I want to make clear is that this is not always repatriation or deportation. Um, this is literally people who had been born in the United States, had citizenship, and you know we talk about what the meaning of citizenship is, um, but were picked up um, and just literally sent back. Um, across the border regardless of their citizenship uh, status, um, but again through sort of this real economic fear, the fear that um, they would not uh, be able, um, that, that, that they were causing a certain kind of economic um, distress. Um, so one of the things I like students to think about is to think about the contradictory impulses in American labor. I think. Lori's really going to talk about this. And we'll talk about it when we get to the to the um, current context. Um, there are moments in American history where we are begging Mexicans to cross the border. We need their labor. We need them to do the kind of work we need them to do. They are uh, depicted as hard workers who are, who are willing to do the kind of work that Americans need. And then there are moments in politics where this anti-immigration uh, sentiment flares up. Um, a contraction in the economy will sort of lead to that kind of um, uh, change in the way people are are, are thinking. About that. Um, I always like to use songs. There's a great song by, uh, done by uh, Bruce Springsteen, the Woody Guthrie song "Deportee," um, which is actually sort of about a later period um, of deportation, but it it, uh, it always works really well uh, at this section uh, as well. Um, The last suggestion I want to make to you um, is I often have students look or remember uh, when they read um, Steinbeck's uh, Grapes of Wrath um, and focus on the place of Salinas, California, where Steinbeck was from um, and where a lot of his sort of ideas about uh, the book uh, sort of came to uh, fruition and pick up these themes um, as well. Um, What I really like people to think about, though, is who's not in Steinbeck's Grapes um, of Wrath. It's it's, it's, if people of color have been virtually sort of um, written out of this story. And yet we know that in Salinas, um, these white Okies, Arkies, people who had been fleeing the Dust Bowl, were very much interacting uh, with Filipinos, Japanese, Mexican-Americans, Hispanics um, in these places. They formed unions. Um, They worked together um, in these lettuce packing uh, plants. Um, and yet that is sort of a, a story that's just sort of completely um, erased from, um, from there. Um, so as I said, as you think um, about adding these things into your, um, into your lectures, into your um, US history uh, courses, um, I think thinking of ways in which you can use these to sort of retell the story and rethink these issues of immigration um, and citizenship in particular. And I, I must have passed over it. Um, I finally looked up, I I'd always wondered this. When passports became, where you had to have a US passport, um, it's not till 1941. Um, So that's very, very late. So up until this point, people are crossing the border without sort of any official um, papers. And I think people aren't really particularly concerned about that. There will be moments like moments during World War I um, when... Um, the State Department begins to worry about sort of people crossing haphazardly, but it's really not until 1941 that you begin to get sort of this national apparatus um, and ideas about citizenship, and as Laurie talks later on, we can talk about sort of the other kinds of surveillance and the ways that we think about how um, these borders get crossed. Thanks.